You are listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. It's always better if the teacher says that than the student. Yeah. <laughs> George's deepest wishes that he'll come here and no one will show up. Just go home. I can stop in the ice cream parlor on the way home. <laughs> or close it. Can't you do that anyway? Are they closed? I can. Uh, true. <laughs> but there isn't so much zip in it. So welcome, this is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And what that means is I'm not going to be offering basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. That uh, being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. We've been going slowly through the Manual of Insight. We're on the the subchapter of the Ten Fetters uh, tonight in the chapter on the development of mindfulness. Uh, There are ten fetters. Lust, the desire for internal or external sensual objects, anger, frustration, hatred, wanting someone to die, uh, arrogance, thinking highly of oneself and competing with others, wrong view, the view of a self of personal identity that either lasts forever or is annihilated after death, doubt, wrong belief, the belief that rituals or ritualistic behavior can lead to liberation, the desire for existence, the desire for an enjoyment of a good life, envy, stinginess, not wanting others to have the same prosperity and reputation as oneself, and ignorance, not knowing the true nature of the mind and body. This fetter accompanies all other fetters. When any of these ten fetters are present in a person, he or she will assume a new existence following death in the previous one and cannot be freed from the unsatisfactoriness of repeated existences. This is why they are called fetters. They bind us to the unsatisfactoriness of repeated existences. The ten uh, kinds of fetters arise in the mind. In a moment of seeing, we fail to be aware of the eye sensitivity, the visual object, or eye consciousness, and if in a moment of hearing we fail to be aware of ear sensitivity, sound, and ear consciousness, and so on. When a fetter occurs, we should note it as it is. Here a bhikkhu understands the eye, he understands forms, he understands the fetter that arises dependent on both, and he also understands how there comes to be the arising of an unrisen fetter, and how there comes to be an abandoning of an arisen fetter. So. Um, one of the things that I find so interesting about this is this is a very Theravada view, the idea of personal liberation which relieves you from the cycles of rebirth, the unsatisfactoriness of being reborn over and over again. One of the things that distinguishes this so much from the Mahayana version where the Bodhisattva view engages, which is the desire to be continuously reincarnated so that you can serve the community uh, and cause the liberation of of all beings. So the Theravada is the first turning of the wheel, the Mahayana is the second and third turning of the wheels. Um, My teacher Shinzen um, Young uh, teaches what he calls uh, mindfulness or vipassana meditation, which is is often expressed in the language of Theravada Buddhism, but he was a monk in the Japanese Tibetan tradition, and he worked with Sasaki Roshi for 30 years as his translator. And so um, this uh, sense of American Buddhism, which arises from this sort of selecting of all of the different strands of Buddhist uh, thought, is more in line with what he teaches than this specific and narrow view of the Ten Fetters. Also, uh, we're subject to the conditions of different translations 
Um, the ten fetters uh, that are associated uh, often in the teaching of the four path model of liberation is a different list of fetters. Similar but different. <coughs> um, in a four path model of liberation, which is the, the Theravada map, um, stream entry is the eradication of the first three fetters, which is a belief in religious ceremony, which you see in here, uh, which would be number six, wrong belief. Uh, the eradication of doubt, which in this list is the fifth, and then an, an eradication of the belief of a, a self, ongoing uh, self, um, which is wrong view. So four, five, and six, the eradication of those three is considered stream entry. The second path is the weakening of craving and aversion, so uh, mm -hmm. lust and anger, so one and two. <clears throat> well, no, it's just crazy that you're, so you're expected to eradicate doubt, self, or the notion of self, doubt, and what was the third one? And, oh, and belief in religious ceremony. Before you eradicate craving and aversion? Yes, That's long before. Well, <clears throat> you eradicate like the belief in those things, not just like to like never have doubt again. It isn't all doubt, it's only doubt that this path leads to liberation. And if you think about it, that would make sense. If you have the experience of liberated mind, then the doubt that liberated mind would exist is eradicated, because you've had the direct experience of it. So in Theravada Buddhism, when you have the, the strong experience of cessation or fruition, <coughs> Uh, and you re-emerge from the experience of nirota, these are all uh, words that mean the same thing, then you watch uh, through the uh, um, awakened awareness, the arising of the experience of self and world, and it, and it eradicates doubt that this path will lead there because you've been there. Is that making sense? About doubt of whether or not you're going to be able to accomplish what you can, you can that is the same doubt but it's eradicated by the experience of having done it so you don't you don't um, other doubts are still present but that particular doubt around the possibility of liberation or that this path will lead you there is eradicated because you've successfully uh, achieved that state so you can still doubt that the bus is going to get there on time. Right. But you don't doubt the path. Right? You're right. Okay. You can still crack the box on the engagement ring and doubt what the answer will be. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can open the box of Cracker Jacks and still be in doubt about what the prize will be. In uh, the second path, you don't eliminate anything, you just weaken the, the strength of craving and aversion. So you work to re uh, uh, weaken it. it. What's I think so interesting is that most people who have stream entry are flung into an experience of craving and aversion, which is like on steroids, like mm -hmm. they've never had the, in the intensity of craving or aversion to the extent that they have it there. And so this process of just beginning to weaken it mm -hmm. <coughs> Um, and then, um, in the third path, you actually eliminate craving and aversion. Um, and then in the fourth path, you eliminate the remaining five fetters. So, restlessness and agitation, uh, sloth and torpor, the craving for existence, the craving for non-existence, and the craving of conceit. Um, so, but that's the translation that I've always worked with uh, in, the, in the way that, that uh, uh, it's been translated uh, for me, and so the, this translation is different. So then we also have this um, um, process of working with texts that are translations of, of texts, and then how is the, that translation uh, occurring and, and what does it mean? Um, 
the desire for existence is sometimes talked about in the mundane sense of, of the desire for life to continue, to, to go on, to not die. And then in the super mundane way, uh, the desire to be reincarnated in a celestial realm or in a, in a higher realm than the, the human existence. Uh, matching that to the craving for non-existence the, in the mundane sense, the, uh, the um, desire to die or to be relieved of suffering in a way that uh, indicates no longer being alive and in a super mundane way uh, the desire uh, to be liberated to the point that you're no longer reincarnated. Um, conceit the, um, <clears throat> do you ever have the sense of sitting and it goes really well and you get into an altered state and it feels amazing and then you think to yourself, what a great meditator I am. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> when, um, <clears throat> when I first started working with the somaticized emotional pain, I worked with anger and it took about two and a half years to work through the old somaticized anger and then when it was relieved I really had this solid sense of being a terrific meditator that I really worked through anger. Um, I, I presented this to Shinzen and said, yes you worked through the old anger but I bet you can still get angry. <laughs> Have you tried fear? <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. And then, so I'm going along, I've worked through anger in the, in the sense of the pool so that it makes the anger uh, of ordinary life really manageable in comparison to this old, old anger welling up and uh, being conflated with the anger of the present moment and and that intensity, uh, and then the reaction that comes from that intensity of feeling, which is so out of scale with what, what's actually happening, that was relieved by that process. So the, the anger reactions are in line with what's actually happening, which is a much different experience of life. And I know that this has come from the, the practice, because before the practice it was just a constant flare-up, uh, and then fear arises in, in, in the body, in one of the pools, and I think, um, shit, another two and a half years of, of sitting through fear, how is that going to be possible? And fear was not a big, big one for me, so I worked through it in about six months. <clears throat> I don't use fear typically as a way of regulating emotion, anger and sadness, helplessness maybe more. Consider fear to be the root of dissociation. Um, I would fear. I would think that the root of dissociation is the lack of an escape route. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, that. <laughs> that I would call that helplessness, not fear. Um, and and actually, I I could tell you about that. It's tricky. Yeah. Six months. Fear is gone, and then I'm thinking, I'm really a good meditator. I whipped through fear in six months. Um, all of that work I did on anger really made me a terrific meditator. And then sadness came, and I said, I'll whip through sadness in six months. And five years later, <laughs> just an incredibly daunting experience, I managed to come to the end of not sadness, but the end of the somaticized yeah. experience of sadness. And I don't have it, still I don't have it. And then I was thinking, oh fuck, what's next? And Because uh, it was so hard, the, the sadness was so yeah. hard. And then um, shame came, and I thought, oh shit. Five years of unbearable shame is just, it's, how will I do this? And it, and it actually only took about 18 months to do that because it wasn't also a big one for me. Huh. And then helplessness came. I thought, oh, 
fuck, helplessness. Helplessness was tricky because I, I could hold it for such a short period of time before the dissociation yeah. happened that I couldn't actually even put a technique on it. Yeah. it would, I'd just be gone. Yeah. And it took about eight months to be able to get, to hold the experience long enough to be able to actually put a technique on it. And then it didn't take that long in comparison to work through it. <coughs> mm -hmm. Being of a fearful mind, um, I, don't have a, I don't have nearly the remorse that I have regret. The, mostly my, I've been working on, this is now my seventh year of working on the somaticized experience of regret. Mm -hmm. um, and actually it's way better than it was, but it hasn't completed in terms of that. Um, what are all the different, <coughs> other ones? Um, I don't know, you know, everybody's kind of individual. It's your conditioning, what happened yeah. to you. Um, some people don't, um, people who don't have a fearful mind uh, as one of the dominant forms don't tend to regret because they don't, they tend to have remorse more than they have regret because they engage in the action rather than withhold from the action, right? That makes total sense, right? <laughs> if you're not afraid, you generate more remorse. Right. So fearful people don't participate, they don't do, they withhold, they retreat, they isolate, <coughs> and so all of the opportunities just keep going by them and they don't take any of them and so they end up in this place of deep regret over what might have happened. Or they begin and then they, they get uh, emotionally dysregulated somewhere in the middle and they withdraw because they don't ever complete anything. And then, so in the lack of doing it you suffer from regret. If you're the person who's lacking empathy and you're just charging ahead, taking whatever you want, um, you know, rape and pillage, whatever it is, then you tend to have remorse when you reconnect into your emotional life, but you don't regret as much because you haven't restrained yourself. In the I same have way. a false sense of remorse, like when you have that feeling and there's not something real to attach to it. You feel like you've done something terrible, uh, but something terrible hasn't been done. So that's fear? Possibly. <laughs> okay. Um, because it's fear of being punished for something that you've done that's terrible. Well, that would be right? more what I would describe as the fearful mind. Yeah. If you look from an attachment lens on this, Secure people are restrained by their empathetic experience of other people's pain. So they have a natural inhibitor in, in that. They're empathetically connected, they, they, they take an action which causes pain in the other person, and then they, they have the experience of the other person's pain which acts as an inhibitor. Mm -hmm. People who are dismissing in their attachment strategy don't feel their own emotions and, and uh, they don't feel empathy, and so there's no inhibitor. They take an action which may cause great pain to somebody else, but because they don't feel it, they're not inhibited by taking the action. Uh, so they tend to be more in that direction. <coughs> Preoccupied people are um, also, uh, depending on the degree of the preoccupation, less likely to feel uh, inhibited by their actions. But it's different than feel not like, feeling empathy. But I also feel like preoccupied people struggle not with necessarily empathy, but compassion. Yeah, no, they don't. <coughs> if you look at the helplessness <coughs> of preoccupation, they're so focused on the other person that the empathetic experience becomes the dominant yeah. experience. So they're very focused on the other person, but they don't. Uh, regulate their own emotions well. Um, if they're on the fearful end, they don't really even experience their own emotions. Right, so they they only experience the empathetic uh, experience of the other person. But is it is it that? It feels like it's like it's their person. It's like I don't know. I feel like there's there isn't empathy there as much as there's preoccupation with trying to be obsessed with you fixing their needs, but not. No, no, there's, uh, oh, they, they're not, 
they don't repress exactly. awareness of their emotions. Right. Um, it wouldn't be inhibit, inhibiting. Another person's emotions would not be inhibiting to them because they think the other person's emotions are theirs. Well, it's a reversal. They, they, the, their own emotional life is displaced and becomes secondary, and the empathetic experience of the other person is uh, what they think is their emotions, and so they become highly manipulative to change the way that they feel, which is not empathetic, right? Which is about changing the way other people feel. They're changing the way that other people feel so that they'll feel differently. Right. They're not doing it for the other person, they're doing it for their own experience. It's not empathetic and it's not inhibiting in terms of the pain that they might cause someone else because uh, if they, they experience your pain, they, they'll just manipulate you so that they can feel differently. But I feel like they're also struggle with attunement to a large degree. So how can you be so focused on somebody else's emotional state when you really can't, uh, <coughs> like, how, how do you know what that they're is? They're more attuned to mind states. Which is less empathetic. Um, right, you're sense. thinking that if they were actually attuned, that they would be responsive. I guess that's what But they're not. No. They're, they assume that the way that you feel is their feelings, and so if they want to adjust their feelings, they adjust you in any way that they so can. Interesting. So they can't have empathy for themselves, they can't have empathy for you. They don't, they don't distinguish them in that they way. They probably project in a way that's like, they're annoyed by. Mm -hmm. So I'm taking off that. There are probably some like, because they seem to also be annoyed if you're dysregulated. Because then you're attributing them. So the reason that preoccupied people are angry is because they think that no matter what they do, they're going to lose. And they're mad about it. And they're resistant. Uh, angry resistant is another word for how they operate. They're constantly critical. Um, they scan the environment for a problem and then they present you with a problem and demand that you solve it. Not because they want the problem solved, but because they want proximity and they want the engagement with you. So you're in a position of never being able to solve it because if you solve it, it means that they don't get to have the engagement and the proximity. So they present you with a problem and you pr pr provide a solution and they discount the the thing that you've just provided and represent the problem in a slightly modified way um, so that the engagement isn't over. <clears throat> um, their experience of life is that people leave them without explanation. <clears throat> Other people's experience is that they've been explaining until they're blue in the face. And then they just bail because they're and worn out. And then they just bail because they're worn out. Uh, Unless you have a fearful friend who won't tell you, they'll just bail. <laughs> well, I don't, usually they've tried to tell you and they've tried to tell you repeatedly and you don't register it and they give up. That's, and then, and then depart. So, but the, that's not how they experience it. <clears throat> they don't, they, they almost never think that uh, anybody understands that they're manipulative even though they're blatantly manipulative. They don't think that anybody knows. They don't think anybody right. knows right. that they're inauthentic. Right. Um, and they don't seem to, like, that's where the empathy is. Like, they, they don't read uh, that other people are reading them as being inauthentic. No, they don't. They don't. Really interesting. They don't think so. Because it's like, sometimes I feel like you're just in it. So, how do you stop someone from presenting you a problem over and over again? I mean, how do you relate to the preoccupied person effectively? You bail. <laughs> <laughs> No, actually, you don't even do that. You say, uh, I'm going to go to the restroom. Yeah. <laughs> You're out the back door and go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. They'll wait. They'll wait outside the bathroom. <laughs> My mother would. And why is this my fault? <laughs> no, but that's a good question. Why? I mean, like, so we can make the joke about it, but what, what would be a strategy? say you have to deal with this type of personality. So the reason that preoccupied and dismissing people go together so well is because uh, dismissing people are, un, are not empathetic. 
So they don't tune in to the inner workings of the preoccupied person, so they don't know immediately that they're inauthentic. The way that you tell that somebody's being inauthentic is if the, the second level of empathy, which is the reading of the facial expressions and the outward presentation, uh, don't match the felt sense of them. But because dismissing people don't have the third level of empathy, they don't have anything to, to compare it to. So they're much more willing to accept the presentation of the preoccupied person. Um, the dismissing person um, <clears throat> wants an audience to follow them on their path. And the preoccupied person is willing to abandon their path to maintain proximity to the, to the, to the other person, and so that matches well. They follow the dismissing person. The dismissing person feels reassured that they won't be abandoned if they're being pursued. That's the only time they actually feel secure that they won't be abandoned, is if they're being pursued. And so the preoccupied person is happy to abandon their own path and pursue the dismissing person. The dismissing person is not generous in terms of sharing the path that they're on. Um, <clears throat> fulfilling for a dismissive person in terms of like, because being followed in that way, it's not, they're not following because they're seeing the dismissive person, seeing what they're doing and actually admiring it. They're following mostly because they just want proximity. So it's like, there's not that connection in terms of like... The dismissing person experiences that longing that you're talking about for connection typically as um, bitter sadness encased in shame. Mm -hmm. And so they'll do almost anything not to have to feel that. That's the core of the dismissing bind. All of their uh, attachment needs and requests that they made to their caregivers were rejected. They were consistently rejected and they were typically shamed for having them in the first place. And so they withdraw entirely from that mutual empathetic experience because it throws them into the pool of bitter sadness and terrible shame. So, preoccupied people don't make that demand of them, and so they don't need to experience any of that. Um, the preoccupied person uh, is helpless, and that inflates the, the sense of power that the dismissing person has. They're constantly having to save the day, and that makes yeah. them feel uh, and they feel like they're caregivers too, and they feel like they're providing. Um, and that's another thing that works. The care, the dismissing person provides the care that they think the other person should have, and the preoccupied person is not in touch with their own experience. They don't know what they need, and so any gesture from the dismissing person, they're willing to accept, uh, but it makes them angry. They're in a constant state of deprivation because their needs aren't actually being met. If you ask the dismissing person, they'll say, well, I did this, I did this, I did this, yeah. I did this, yeah. I did this, I did this, I took care of you in an amazing way. Yeah. Why are you bitching? Yeah, and then they explain it to them. <laughs> <laughs> they explain it. They have it. Sounds like there's also that like a core belief of or the preoccupied never enough. Yeah. Well, they don't know mass. what their needs are. They don't ask for you to meet their needs. And if they do ask you, it's typically inauthentic and manipulative. Right. So even if you meet their needs, their needs aren't being met. And so they're constantly in a state of deprivation. They've abandoned their path for you to take care of them. And, uh, and they're mad because you haven't compensated them. For, for abandoning their path. So what, what are, I mean, like I understand that preoccupied, I feel like it's like in their unhealthy, like in an unhealthy way, they need proximity. But what happens when they get proximity all this? I feel like that's still not actually their need. Well. Or I guess they, like how, how do you repair in that capacity? They often are unwilling to accept it. Right. But, um, 
they're not willing to accept it because they think somehow you're going to trick them and they're going right. to lose. Yeah, and so they'll get very angry at you. So now we're here, we're talking about epigenetic, <laughs> I can never say that word right, belief. Do you have relationships with people that you feel safe in the sense that you believe what they tell you? Or do you not? Um, preoccupied people never settle into trusting what the other person is saying. So they never stop hyperactivating. And this comes from a from a relationship with an early caregiver who never told them the truth about anything. So they are always having to be hyperactivated to see what was actually happening. So in secure attachment, what people say and what they do are attached and you compare them. In insecure attachment, the what people do has been split off because so rarely did what they say be what they did. And so the child can't tolerate that. So they split off what they do and they don't stop comparing what they say with what they do. And particularly in a preoccupied person, they just accept what you tell them which is good for a dismissive who never has any intention to follow through on anything, right? They're just in it for the moment. They're in it for the juice, the, the, uh, the narcissistic juice. If you give them the narcissistic juice, they'll give you the moon. They, had, they don't own the moon and they had no, no plans of ever delivering it to you, but in the moment it felt really awesome. And then they're bothered by you actually asking them for the delivery of the moon later. <laughs> what are you talking about? They gaslight you about it as well. Right. Never said that. Right. Well, the whole pro process is gaslighting. I'm, I'm curious if this is connected to the craving for existence. Um, hmm. I mean, the relationship is better. I, the craving of existence might be, uh, you could use a dismissing a, a attachment strategy, that sense of inflation as a desire for that. Um, I tend to think of it as in a more practical and ordinary way, which is uh, sometimes things are going great and you just love the, the whole experience of it and you want that to keep going. So it's a denial of the idea that everything ends, including the ups end, too. <clears throat> and then the desire for non-existence comes when the downs don't seem like they're going to end. So you lose track of that sense of impermanence of everything. Yeah. Ever had that moment, peak moments, where you're just so delighted to be alive, and then horrible moments where you just wish that they would end? That's in the, in the sort of mundane sense. I don't, for myself, um, because the Buddhist cosmology has never really resonated very much for me, I don't ever uh, wish that I was reincarnated in, in a celestial realm. Uh, it's not something I really ever think about. I don't. One of the things, um, I was talking to Dan Brown about <coughs> working meditatively with people who have suicidal ideation and one of the things that they notice in the uh, 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 Tibetan community is the desire uh, for reincarnation in a better uh, realm as a cause of suicide, mm -hmm. um, which is not something that I've noticed particularly in our culture. <laughs> I, I would just really... Uh, I haven't. Right. Um, to some degree. But in fundamentalist Christian communities, right. it is a problem yeah. because people want to be re they want to go to heaven, and right. so they commit suicide to go to heaven, which is and you've seen this, or we've all seen this in uh, suicide cults, or we call them suicide cults, but actually they're they're wanting to move on to a plane where there's less suffering. Also, do with like jihadists too. Right. Sort of like it's a conundrum of the 99 virgins. What do you do with 99 virgins? How does that, how does that, how is that appealing? Like, who, who wants 
What's that? I don't understand. <laughs> Somebody that's also a virgin. Right. Right. <laughs> well, there's an idea about it, right? Yes. Um, <clears throat> What's the the fearful? So you're on. You're talking about the dismissive, um, the preoccupied. Uh, so the preoccupied mind is hyperactivated. The dismissing mind is deactivating. Same mechanism. So. Dismissing people don't have an embodied sense of feeling, and some people don't have a, 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 a thinking understanding of their emotions. Um, and deeply dismissing people are empathetically blind to the second level of empathy as well. They can't decode the emotional experience in facial expressions or body language. So they're completely empathetically blind. And so those are the people that tend to be very rigid around their worldview. They decide what you're feeling, and if you present any contrary evidence to that, they become bullying or seductive. That's where the gaslighting comes in, because they can't tolerate the fear of being empathetically blind, the, the refuting of what they've decided is happening. Are, are these the type of people that will frequently communicate like, um, yeah, don't you agree that we should totally go buy me a new car? Oh, like that's one it, no, it, it, like they'll tell you what you think. Like they'll right. tell you you already agree with their plan. That's gaslighting. Yeah, um, but I mean that's that's yeah. part of that extreme. It isn't actually the action; it's the motivation for the action. Because all of the attachment strategies can a take yeah, the can same divert, action, yeah, and it yeah, would understood. somebody could be saying to you, "Come on, let's go buy you a car," right. uh, because they want to give you a present. You could be saying, don't you want to go buy me a car because you want them to buy you a car and you don't want to have to reciprocate for it. I'm going to go buy you a car because they want proximity to you and they know that they can get proximity. Mm -hmm. All of them are the same action. In somebody, um, somebody who's empathetically blind, both at the second and third level, they will say something to you like, what are you feeling? Tell me what you're feeling. You stop telling me what you're feeling. How do you expect me to know what you're feeling if you don't tell me? They need you to tell them in words what they're feeling, what you're feeling. They have no way of knowing. But I feel like it contradicts with their idea of how you should be feeling, and that get them pretty angry too. Well, then they can go into gaslighting. You shouldn't be feeling that. Why are you feeling that way? That's why they're asking They're asking you because they can't read you. They can't read the second or third level of empathy. Or I feel like they'll misread almost anything and just like project onto it what they don't want it to be and get you get Well, they're blind. Them. Yeah. So they're, they're they make up, up their mind about you. Right. And then if you contradict them, they either seduce or bully you into their point of view. Or if you won't go along, they drop you. And I feel like also if they, they'll project their insecurities onto what they're unable to sort of read of somebody else. And so if they're already feeling insecure, they'll just assume that well, your behavior represents their... They, their expectation is that they'll be rejected. And this is based on the actual experience of being rejected over and over again. Right? It isn't, none of this is made up. Um, if you can't read somebody else, you have no way of knowing that they're, the way that they are is any different than the way you think that they are. If you think that they're going to abandon you, then the main way that you regulate that experience is by devaluing them. Why would you share anything intimate with somebody that has no value? That's where you end up. so interesting. So it's all internally driven. I mean, it's basically like a fear of uh, rejection based on just their own issues and their <coughs> um, You need to reassure them in words. Uh, and they like to be pursued because that they can read and it, it tells them that you're not going to abandon them because you're actively pursuing them. So they're always shifting the dynamic so that you are in pursuit of them. That's how they know. So if you're in a relationship with a dismissing person, and you want to get them to take care of you, you have to be in the position of constantly pursuing them. Because that's the only chance you have that they'll take care of you. Yeah. 
understand that in the dismissing person and a preoccupied person are both individual psychological systems, they're closed systems. Mm -hmm. They don't form functional couplings in that way. They have, you have two people that are getting the other person to meet their needs, <coughs> which is different than two people contributing to the needs of the relationship. Um, secure people see the value of having a partner that's very well taken care of because if they need care, the partner's in good shape to take care of them. This is not true of a preoccupied person or a dismissing person. They don't care what shape the other person is as long as their needs are being met. If you have a partner and you don't take care of them, they're not in good shape to take care of you. So there's a constant friction in those kinds of relationships. and. What typically happens is the dismissing person makes the demands to be taken care of and the, and the preoccupied person takes care of them, takes care of them, takes care of them until they burn out. And then they march off and huff. And then the dismissing person flips into seduction mode and pursues them until they're confident that if they withdraw they'll pursue them and then they switch again and withdraw. And they and if they calculate it correctly, that person will pursue. But what often happens at the end of those relationships is they, because they don't have empathy, they don't really know how to read the other person and they make a mistake in terms of the threat of abandonment and it finishes the relationship with the preoccupied person. They won't do it anymore. And then there's nothing that the preoccupied, the dismissing person can do to repair it and so the relationships blow up and then they, and then remarkably, the dismissing person moves on in right. breathtaking yeah, speed. But it isn't that they don't care. They care deeply, mm. but they can't be alone. And if you won't take care of them, they have to have their needs met. And so they find someone else who will do it. <clears throat> or, or they like well, super auto-regulate, right? Is there a gender bias between the passion strategies, like is Erndale's? There is in there is in the media of our culture, but there isn't in terms of numbers, really. I appreciate that. What was the? Well, men are supposed to be dismissive, and women are supposed to be preoccupied. But this is, if this were were always true, um, women would all be preoccupied, and men would all be dismissing, and they're not. But not in reality. Twenty percent of people are dismissing. Twenty percent are preoccupied, and male or female. Yeah, because women can still be neglected as children. So. Right. Or, sorry, girl, like you know, babies. Females. Females. Just <laughs> women cannot be neglected as children. Only. You have an eighty-five percent chance of having the attachment <clears throat> strategy of your primary caregiver, regardless of sex. your sex, right? So if you have a mother who's dismissive, you'll likely be dismissive. And if you have a sister, she will also likely be dismissive. And if you have a preoccupied mother, then you will likely be preoccupied. And if you have a sister, she will also likely be preoccupied. And then you can just be fearful avoided from either because it's a um, fearful avoidance, very particular. You have to be frightened of your caregiver or they have to be so frightened of you that when you empathetically connect to them, the experience of their fear is frightening to you. But I went and I was just at the attachment conference at Harvard. Um, the, uh, they were able to isolate a specific action that the mother takes in response to the child's request for a union, which was to step out of range of the kid. How's it different than dismissing? A dismissing, the, 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 the conundrum for the fearful avoidant child is that they rush up to their parent seeking reunion and they know if they get too close to their parent it will cause their parent to withdraw from them. So they freeze and then they're in this position of do I go forward and try to get the reunion yeah. I want, knowing that it will cause my parent yeah. To withdraw or do I not? So that's the state that you live in as a fearful avoidant, actually, for the rest of your life. 
but pretty or much. And then you watch the child, and they always give in and reach, and the parent always steps back, and then they collapse in fight or flight. I feel like that's the perpetual, then you just stay in that as an adult. Like, it seems that's so similar. Like it's a, right. That's the mechanism yeah. of fearful avoidance. So that you, you're frightened that if you actually reveal your attachment need to somebody else, that it will cause them to withdraw. And if you don't, they won't. And then there you are, not revealing the need. And, and they don't withdraw, but as soon as you do, they do. What do you do with that? Um, in the research, they showed that they could, they could point the action out to the mother and she could either not withdraw or step forward, and that that would resolve the issue for the child. But in my family, there was no such intervention. It's <laughs> not making sense. Um, <clears throat> I'm happy that we got sidetracked by the attachment conversation, but um, um, in to, but to, to tie it back into the ten fetters are in some sense trackable as mind states. Any of these mind states, the attachment mechanisms are also trackable as mind states. So the investigation of mind states is the fundamental thing. This is the mind state that's there and this is the quality of the mind state. When the mind state is there, it filters the way that the perception of the sensing experience is made into the mental formation. So if you remember in that paragraph, it described eye consciousness and the different stages of that. You have the capacity to sense, you, so you have the capacity to sense, you have the object that could be sensed when they meet, there's contact, and the uh, activity, say, for instance, if light hits the eyes, you have eye consciousness, you have the consciousness of that sensing experience arising, whatever the sense gate is. There's the capacity of knowing whether the sensing experience itself is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then you take that ultimate reality of sensing and form it into the conceptual reality based on the process of perception. So the sensing experience is the sensing experience of this moment is compared to the database of previously sensed times. And if you find a match, all of the conditioning of the previous sensing experiences around that is associated with the current sensing moment, and it creates the mental formation of the experience of this sensing moment. Is that making sense? And that also in there informs what kind of action you should take in response to it. The fetters or these mind states that interfere with the, the uh, reliable creation of a mental formation of the sensing experience is what we want to begin to look for. So we could describe the list of the ten fetters or we could describe the list of attachment mechanisms and look for those uh, experiences. To a dismissing person, they can interpret through the dismissing mind almost any action as rejecting. And they will experience it authentically as rejecting because the dismissing mind state is there. Um, all of these insecure attachment strategies are driven in some way by the fear of abandonment. It's just how they, the different strategies regulate them. The, if you look at the stages of emotional development, autoregulation is what we all do first because we're isolated in our bodies. And as we begin to develop the capacity to sense other people, we move into this externally directed emotional regulation. The, the caregiver comes and regulates us. We learn in this, this dyadic relationship with our primary caregivers how to be co-regulated, how to be soothed by the emotional and empathetic experience of someone else, and then we recognize that actually we have an effect on someone else. In early childhood development, it isn't just being known to the other person that is useful to us. We want to know that we can have an effect on the other person. So that, that's 
a cauldron which develops co-regulation. We regulate the other person, they regulate us. And if you have a reliable caregiver, uh, and remember it is a low bar, right? They just have to show up 30% of the time in order for that to happen. Then you come to rely on other people as the primary means of negotiating your emotional regulation. When you rely on that, then the amount of time and energy and resources that you need to put into relationships so that they're available to you makes real sense and you put the energy into having the relationships that are available to you. You recognize immediately whether somebody can co-regulate you or not and you put the energy into the relationships that can co-regulate you. And in being co-regulated and supported in your exploration, you become a master at regulating yourself, knowing that if you get out of balance and can't regulate yourself, that you can come back to the person who helped you co-regulate. You know that all you have to do to get somebody to do that for you is to be there for them when they need it. So the relationships are mutual. But that's in secure relationships. In insecure relationships, because that never happened, we don't, it doesn't make sense to us to put the resources into the relationships because we don't get that back from them. And depending on what you, how you respond, if you're dismissing, you need that energy to pursue your own solo exploration. If you're preoccupied, you need that energy to pursue the person. If you're fearful avoidant, you use that energy to auto-regulate yourself in isolation. So, <clears throat> is that making sense? So we do want to be able to detect any of these ten fetters. I like the list of ten fetters, but I also really think that the, to beginning to recognize the attachment uh, mind states is really useful as well. Is that making sense? I think we should do some metta um, based on looking at the mind state it's also the holidays, so doing a little extra met is a good idea, I think. So how did that go? conditions of the present moment, whether you can do it or not. things I notice about Metta Mind is everybody looks really good. <laughs> it's true. George, nothing John, it's just me. <laughs> no argument. <laughs> well, it's just less scary to hold focus also, I feel like. Mm. Can you talk about how uh, the mind state comes and or goes as you work up John's feel? 
if I go into flow, it feels like it's not there so much anymore. It's just kind of everything. Mm. But then when the flow goes away, you're letting your your uh, attention broaden onto the flow, or yeah. you're staying with the. One of the things I notice about it is it's there's it's spatially located, and it has a. Mind states in general are spatially located for me, uh, sort of mid forehead down, behind the eyes, and there's a different pattern in the sensation depending on which mind state it is. The mind state of loving kindness is more right side than left side for me. But, um, so I would think that you're letting up on the um, concentration of the pattern and becoming more diffuse. That, that's how I describe my experience of it. You'd have to investigate whether that's actually what's happening. You may be, the, the flow experience may be pulling you out of the concentrated state on the mind state. Which is not necessarily a problem, it's just... Um, jhana, metta jhana is the same as vipassana jhana in terms of you place your attention, you sustain it, uh, PT arises, which is flow, and then in reaction to the PT, sukha arises, which is the bliss experience, and then you notice that the mind settles one-pointedness. The first jhana is very unstable, you keep popping out, and then when you go into the second jhana, it stabilizes, and you no longer have to apply or sustain your attention, the mind is just there. Um, but you begin to notice that the energy of the PT is quite coarse and distracting, and then you settle further into just bliss and one-pointedness. That's the third metta-jhana. And that's as far as you can go in, in, in jhana with metta, because in the fourth jhana you replace the bliss with equanimity, and then you've moved out of metta-jhana into vipassana-jhana. And then how do you continue vipassana-jhana? Well, the fourth jhana um, is sort of what happens is in the fifth jhana the, you go into what big mind. It's this really expansive awareness, which is you moving you moving into awareness and everything is sort of flowing. And then in the sixth jhana, in the classical descriptions of it, you have a casina of white light uh, arise in visual space which is usually like somebody shining a light in your eyes. Um, and then the seventh jhana, um, the, it, it's like a crystalline blue light that comes around the edges. Oh, and, it's, um, and then the eighth jhana, which is also very unstable, the, the blue light goes away and it's just pure awareness, but there's no object. For metta jhana purposes, though, as soon as you notice you're going into equanimity, you need to redouble the awareness of the person so that you can sustain the mind state of kindness. You don't want, in metta, in the practice we were doing, you would not want to pursue the rest of the, the jhanas. I think it was like, felt, I don't know, describing it as like very surgical to like get metta back in once it hit that sort of equanimity, like a drop almost, and I had to like. I noticed that it was a sort of a natural overshooting that would happen, particularly on, in, on the retreat in, in Myanmar. You'd, you'd just, boom, there you'd be in the fourth child. It just drops. And then you would intentionally rethink of the person that you were practicing for and push yourself back into kindness, kind mind. You need to notice the, the change in the mind state. <laughs> Good. You want to drop into fourth jhana and then go into vipassana practice. That's a good thing to do, but not not if you're doing metta. It's a good thing to be able. The the advantage of this kind of practice of metta is that when you notice another mind state or particularly an afflictive mind state, you can replace it. If you notice you're angry, you can just replace it. If you look at the stages of enlightenment. Um, where you want to get to is a place where the uh, afflictive mind states no longer arise. And part of that practice is the 
a, a recognition of the immediate switch. Mm -hmm. Recognition of the immediate switch, which is one of the things that the metta jhana practice is good for. So it doesn't stick. Hmm? It doesn't stick. Which? The afflictive state, the afflictive kind of. Mind. I think sometimes it's a tug of war. Yeah. Um, so it's like, like, it's like a non stick pad. Yeah. Like, it's like okay. it's clean and then clear and then. Yeah. So, but yeah. Yeah, gold. Gold. A gold pan. Yeah. <laughs> gold light? Yeah. Where there's no, where there's, in those moments of not, there's, where there's not, there's none of the ignorance or none of the consciousness mm -hmm. or presence. I never had experienced those blue lights you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm not there yet. Well. Might look different. Yeah. Sometimes it's like a like yeah. cylinder, like a. That's the sixth. Yeah. So that one, that one's pretty distinct. Yeah. And then seventh, for me, it's always this sort of, it's like a blue northern lights. Oh, yeah. And then eighth jhana, it's just black. There's no objects at all. It's just pure awareness. The fourth jhana was black. <coughs> I just remember because I didn't know what it was. Well, either. It was and it just like it just went dark mm. and like dry and kind of cold, but it was super luminous. But I remember it was like there's like felt like it was like super dark. There's no equanimity in the eighth jhana. It's just pure awareness. Yeah. And do you, and you don't get PT back after the fourth? No. Well, no, I, I, all the way up to the eighth, you're in the body. Mm -hmm. um, I remember the first time I went into the sixth jhana, I was up at La Casa de Maria, and it was as if somebody drove a car up, and yeah, it was right there, and it's shining in my eyes. And it was so convincing, I opened my eyes. <laughs> and, um, and there was nothing there. In fact, there was no place a car could be there. <laughs> and you, were you able to get back to that place when you closed your eyes? Yeah. Wow. So, um, I was doing the sadness pool, okay. which is which is um, PT, right? So you're focusing the object of meditation becomes the PT, which is highly concentrating, and then yeah. working on emotional somaticized emotion is an easy object because the, the sensation is so intense. Yeah. So this is vipassana. Um, and, and because of the intensity of the sensation, all of the other sensations just sort of fall away into the background, and so you just are left with that intensity of experience. Any questions about this? Have you had Vipassana, Metajana instructions before? Um, not necessarily in the same way, Smith, um, who would do similar, like metta vipassana, using metta as the stabilizing force in the beginning of a, mm -hmm. of a month long. Right. So two weeks of metta, metta, and then opening into. Yeah, I find that awesome. Yeah. So I, ever since I've learned, like, let's start with metta, yeah. <laughs> just through all the muck. Right. Um, like this is the only way. All of the retreats I do are metta vipassana. Yeah, so the first half of the yeah. retreat is meta. So, so much more. I know how I <laughs> All those early retreats are like, I'm fucking out of here after three days or yeah, like four days. Like this is this is intolerable. There can't be anything better than this. It can't get any worse. Right. And then if you do the meta first, it relieves all of that yeah. self judgment and then you could go straight into it and examine it from this place so of kindness. No, it's good. Yeah, I, I mean, for me tonight, I just kind of, I was actually feeling this, um, a little kind of sloth and torpor, but um, the object was sustainable, but and then the mind state of kind of a diffuse kind of sleepy, sleepiness. Mm -hmm. But then, then as soon as there was awareness of it, then, you know, back to the, back to the person. Good. Yeah. Useful. 
So thank you for coming. This is deepening your practice. So I'm always going to be advocating ways to deepen your practice. The 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 winter retreat is the registration for it is closed, but we are having a spring retreat in Millerton, New York, in April. You could come to that. Um, also, we're going to start some intensive classes in March. We're going to do a level one meaningful life and a level two meaningful life. So the level one is purely psychoeducational and meditation training. And level two is where you work one-on-one -on -one with a mentor. We're going to use a, an, a, an evaluation tool to, to determine uh, what your attachment strategy is. And then also we're going to incorporate idealized uh, parent figure protocol into the, the training so that we'll begin to do these guided meditations where we're actually attempting to get you to shift your functioning relationships into a more secure basis. <clears throat> Next September, we're going to do a level three training where we actually do uh, an AAI for everybody and, and uh, develop a personalized uh, IPF protocol for each person who takes the course. But the second training is a pr prerequisite for that class. So if you want to do it, you should come to the second level class. We're also going to do a meditation interventions class as an intensive, which is a psychoeducational and meditation training class. It counts as a level one training, so you could move into. We think that once you stabilize the addiction, that you need to move into attachment repair, and so we move you from the addiction stuff right into the attachment stuff, so into the, level two. So the interventions, the meditative interventions, are primarily. Interventions for addictive behavior right. or not, not, not for attachment. It, it includes an, a, um, an attachment piece around. We're using Marlap's map of relapse prevention, mm -hmm. and so the, the first three modules are about emotional regulation, and the fourth module is about how to have secure relationships. So uh, we also. If you don't have a daily practice, we have morning meditation, which is a live conference call, and there's a flyer for that. The classes here are offered on a Donna basis. The suggested Donna for this class is $20. Um, if $20 feels generous, give it that amount. If you're really well resourced and it doesn't feel particularly generous, give it an amount that does feel generous. If it's too much, give it a level that's appropriate to your resources. But each time you come to this or any other meditation, class, uh, give something as, a, as part of your practice of generosity. This is a, really the, the beginning of the path, the heart opener of the path. Um, cash out there in a bowl, I can uh, take a card here. There's also some bracelets out there if you want a transitionary object to carry around. <laughs> uh, and thank you, we'll see you, I think the second week of January is the next time this class is happening. Thank you.